Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com Ich versteinischt. Holy Madness brought peace to my home, peace to the Middle East, and a piece of pie. Without this podcast, I'd still have my teeth. You're listening to Holy Madness, Episode 9. I'm your co-host, Mer Simcha. And I'm your other co-host, Tzvi. And tonight we're talking about why Tzvi will not receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. (laughs) We are? Yes. (laughs) Okay. That's, That's a pretty good question. Well, hang on there. You made an assumption. How do you know I wouldn't? Ooh, busted. In fact, maybe I already did. Nah. Well, I mean, it's acceptance in your heart. What do you know what goes on in my heart? I mean, I'm pretty sure all that goes on in there is clogged arteries, but do you, you don't know about that. Do you have a heart? That is a better question. Uh-huh. So you're saying, so you're saying I'm not able to. So this is a moot question. I'm not a Calvinist. <laughs> well... I think it would be a lot more fun to actually explore some of the reasons that I, I would. Yeah, okay, let's start there. Tzvi, why would you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, first of all, I grew up in America. I grew up in a society, even even in the America that I grew up in, mm-hmm. which wasn't the America you grew up in. It certainly is not the America of, let's say, Nebraska. Okay. But What was Christianity in Flatbush like? Well... It certainly wasn't the dominant flavor of the milieu. Like I said, we, this wasn't, you know, the Midwest or Texas. But there were plenty of local churches. There's actually one that's smack in the middle of, you know, one of the... Hasidish Brooklyn. Not Hasidish. The, what you and I would call Yeshivish Brooklyn. Okay. The, the ultra-Orthodox. And, and it was full. I don't know where these people came from. Yeah, that's the question. But it was a nice, beautiful church. It's on Avenue M in East 29th Street. If anybody wants to go check it out. Beautiful thing. Uh, half a block long, gorgeous, and nice statues, well, very well-kept landscape. No, it was really beautiful. It actually used to bother sure. me. I'd walk by it, and here's this building that had the this sense. The going. Yes. had this sense of grandeur, mm-hmm. and you'd go to a synagogue, and they didn't. I mean, some, some were nicer than others, mm-hmm. but none of them had this, you know, sense of this, like, imposing awe. You, you know what I love about davening in synagogues as opposed to churches? Which God you're praying to? I don't know. <laughs> well, there's that too. But just in terms of the architecture, mm-hmm. when you walk into a shul, you are surrounded by books. Yes. But to be fair, when you walk into a church, it's this beautiful sanctuary, big spaces. It's, it, you know, you almost have this feeling of little you in the presence of this big otherworldly thing. Yeah, instead of the warmth and intimacy of books, you have this grandeur. Yeah. You wouldn't want to cover up all the nice paintings with books. (laughs) So you've you've got this really awe-inspiring building, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the the music also has this tremendous, I mean, it's tremendous. Yeah, the music is tremendous. Of of its its awe. Well, the temple, too. The music is the... Is the main thing there. Yes. It, It defines what the... What's going on? But I'm saying, fine, but I mean, look, for all we knew, they were playing disco music in the temple. We don't have any remnant of what that music was. Well, we, we have the words. We don't have the tunes. 
we know about the instrumentation, so we can make guesses as to... I'm sure you can find a harpist that plays a, a mean disco. I'm joking, obviously, but I'm saying the, the overwhelming emotion yeah. that I find hmm. in the Christian music that I've come across mm-hmm. is this sense of awe, is this like majesty where you're in the presence of something powerful, if not otherworldly. Please explain. I'm talking about the contemporary Christian music, the kind that you would hear Christian on a rock. Christian radio. Not necessarily rock. Um, a lot of it defies description in terms of technical genres. They, they borrow from all and subscribe to none. But certainly more popular music sounding. I didn't say pop. But popular music, you know, in terms of what you'd hear on different radio stations mm-hmm. than, you know, uh, some choir singing in Latin. Mm-hmm. We, we mentioned, actually, in, in another episode, uh, My God is an Awesome God. And uh, my apologies again to one of our listeners who reached out to tell us that we got the song stuck in her head. So we probably just did it again. Yes. And uh, I'm sorry and you're welcome. Um, but that, that would be one example. Um, Hillsong United out of Australia, well, now a whole bunch of other cities, has this gorgeous song that they released called Oceans. Where, look, a lot of it, a lot of it is, is tricks of, you know, of, of music, where you can play with tempo and key changes and, you know, using a bridge and the, the feeling of coming home. These are all, this is all stuff that has to do more with the music than the playing it or what they're doing. You. Right. Where, you, you know, you're, you're, you're playing the crowd as if they're an instrument, too. I play music enough to, to get that. But there's, the, the thing that always strikes me is there's, there's this emotion that comes out of the, the singers, and that's kind of inherent in the song, which is not just the tricks of music. Mm-hmm. There really is this this sense of I'm not just religious devotion and and ah, okay. rapture, devotion. if you rapture. will, and awe, Ecstasy. and yes, well, well, it builds up to that. Okay. that that's kind of the thing. It, it, it goes through this progression where it starts off in this plaintive devoted i mean look here's here's a great example and it's not anything new at all uh, amazing grace which i love i love amazing grace in fact there's a, there's a version by some irish group called celtic woman okay celtic woman if you're a basketball fan <laughs> and and uh you can find it on youtube and, and and it's you know it's done in like three-part harmony and, and they come around from you know the first verse into the chorus, and then they have this whole build-up with an orchestra, and then it, it, it culminates in this swelling fifty parade, this swelling sense, this fifty-person choir singing behind mm-hmm. this tripart harmony that the the three main vocalists are doing. Three or four, I forget. Um, and there's this sense of you know this rising, and it, and it finishes in this amazing you know climactic ending where you really feel as if there was, there was something emoted there. 
Like even look, one one of the ways I came to this, I actually look like 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 we've mentioned a thousand times. I, I grew up Orthodox. Listening to Christian music was also a no no. <laughs> so the way I came to this was I I I picked up this book in a dollar store mm-hmm. called In the Land of Believers by Gina Welch, and then he lent it to me. It's a great book. It's a fantastic book, uh, an eye opening book, and in all honesty. Uh, a rare book in the sense that no matter who's reading it, they'll appreciate something from a different walk of life. If you are not mm-hmm. a member of an evangelical community or church, then that will be a wonderful insight into seeing these people as people. It, yeah. it humanizes what otherwise you look at as a demographic. And if you are one of these people, it will give you a very good insight into how other people see will see you. And and obviously there's uh, um, a prism of you know shades of gray in between those two extremes, but it really is something for everyone. And and the author is is a she was raised like practically communist out in like you know the California. West Coast. Yeah, she went to UVA and she felt this closeness to the South, but evangelical Christianity was always this thing that sort of. Stuck in her side for her because it didn't fit in. Like, how could she square that with her basic atheism and these nice people? And but they believe these crazy things. And what do I do with all that? And so then, at the end of completing her uh, graduate degree in writing, creative writing, yeah, she decided to make it a writing project for herself. Yeah, and that's the book. Yeah, and so. She describes how the first thing that really threw her for a loss, the first thing that bypassed her intellectual preconceived notions and answers, which is a defense against any other belief somebody's trying to tell you, was the music. And how it would, she, you know, almost like you'd feel these, these emotions coursing through your body. She described it as feeling that the top of her head was taken off. Right. In one, I mean, she describes it in a few different places in a few different ways, but that was that was definitely one of the most powerful, and and how it it transcended her perception of time. It's almost an image of like circumcision, like taking away a protective barrier, barrier, yes, to be open to something greater than yourself. I have a funny feeling we might be the only two people that would have seen that in that description, but it's 100% true. So, at any rate, and so that got me really curious as uh, somebody that that loves to learn and understand, uh, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. So I decided I was going to go look for some stuff. So, you know, the problem is when you type in Christian music into YouTube, it's a little too broad. <laughs> <laughs> And so it took a while until I started finding this kind of stuff. So Amazing Grace was actually the first one I found mm-hmm. because it's fairly quoted often. It's mm-hmm. even still used in, in many churches as part of the, the, the services. Mm-hmm. So I came across it somewhere. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll, I'll try that. And I went through a few different renditions of it. Because mm-hmm. obviously the first time you hear a song, you don't like it. It could just be the way it was played. Mm-hmm. You know, you can... Right. So and then I found this one by Celtic Woman and and and, and I experienced I wouldn't say the top of my head came off, but I experienced that same sense of maybe a little bit of your nose and earlobe. <laughs> that would have been an improvement. I'm Jewish, <laughs> <laughs> but 
says the blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Anyway. Yeah. So, but I, I had a very similar experience in the sense of awe and majesty and and this thing that almost get it makes you emote outwards it's Mm -hmm. something coming in at you that draws something out of you is it different than listening to mumford and sons older music follows the same musical principles that you would find in these that's exactly why i'm choosing that example the answer is no Uh uh-huh okay and that's part of a in my opinion that's that's definitely a huge part of why they were so wildly successful Mm -hmm. as a commercial act Mm -hmm. and this is an opinion. I, I it's me describing myself, but it's certainly a huge reason of why I love their music mm-hmm. and uh, still do. Well, not the new stuff, but mm-hmm. even the new stuff to an extent. It's still it's the same patterns. It's just more you know. Eh, now I'm a little mad. Rah, whatever. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's definitely it's definitely a big part of it. And then you know the great thing about YouTube is they're, they they can figure out what you're looking for based on what you've looked for. Right. And I would just every so often click through the rabbit hole until I found something interesting and I'd add it to the repertoire. And I have another brother of mine actually that does this also, although he came to to what we jokingly amongst ourselves call Jesus music mm-hmm. through country music. Ah, uh-huh. okay. And, but, you know, we will send each other, you know, oh, this is a good one, that's a good one, you know, whatever. Um, and so I found, you know, a, a few of these. Uh, Crowder is another one, has this gorgeous... Crowder is actually interesting because it's not really prayer. It's, it's much closer to our Hasidic line of music, where it's... it's you mean like it's, No, I mean like the, the tunes are all in minor chords... It's very plaintive. It's it's almost like the the sense you get is the outpouring of your heart to God, as opposed to this out of body experience, which draws all this other stuff from you and leaves you standing in awe and majesty of some greater thing. Hmm. Uh, but he has a wonderful song called "Come as You Are," uh, and the lyrics are actually yeah, sure, wonderfully. I, I, I played it for you. <laughs> yeah, it's by Kurt Cobain. No, no, not that one. I mean, if you want two songs with the same title that couldn't be more different, uh, this is definitely a candidate. Um, But I've played you the Crowder version also. Um, It it even goes as far back as as Morrison with Mm -hmm. Full Force Gale, which I always pictured in my... Listen, Morrison, they're like like Christian mystics. It's something that runs through a lot of their music. Yeah, so I found this song by accident. So I found this song by accident because the first job I had here, mm-hmm. I was given a company car to use for the weekends because I was doing Thursday nights and Saturday nights in another city here. And I guess whoever, you know, the boss, I don't know, whatever his life story was, but there was a Best Hits of Morrison CD in the player mm-hmm. and the car had a very weak radio. And because I was driving Highway 443, I couldn't pick up an Israeli radio. So I was just stuck with this one CD and had 20 tracks and I hated 19 of them. (laughs) And the one that I liked kind of had a peppy beat to it and was fun to drive to. So I kind of just would play it on repeat for the entire 20, 25 minute stretch Mm -hmm. of the highway where I couldn't pick up any FM. And this was the song, Full Force Gale. And it actually took till about the third or fourth time around that I realized what the lyrics were Mm -hmm. and what it was trying to say. And and it was it was it was fantastic. I was like, wow, that's actually really amazing. You have a multi-layered experience of, of music 
where the lyrics are saying one thing and the music is giving over almost contradictory emotions because it's like this cute little happy song like mm. you know you can picture yourself bouncing back and forth um and then at the same time you realize like how the two come together mm-hmm. it's a whole different experience wow so so this is the kind of stuff that i liked and still do in fact uh, any person has been through the house and and you can testify to this um it's... i will i will testify <laughs> So not Rage Against the Machine, but, you know, these Christian religious music that we've been discussing are part of the playlists that I'll do my work with or, you know, leave on in the background for for, for easy listening and stuff. Um, they've become a part of my life. So that's certainly one thing. Another one that I don't, I don't feel this is the right place to go into in detail, but I, I put it down as, as, as something that would be another thing that I find attractive about the, the Christian world uh, and, and religion at large. In, and it's kind of built off this thing about the music, but that sense of awe and majesty and this almost respect pervades the services as well. And in the... Obviously, look, I'm not going to say... In contrast to Flatbush. No, it's not just Flatbush. Now, again, obviously, you know, the old two Jews, three opinions, so, so you know, every synagogue is really a thing of its own there is no centralized anything um but it's it doesn't have that same sense of majesty or that same sense of you are in the presence of something else it's very individualistic in the sense that it's your service Mm -hmm. as opposed to the service if you have a sense of being before the king it's not because of the service it's because of what you bring to it right you we talked about this in prayer it's where you are standing but it's very much you yeah and that's difficult mm-hmm. uh and for those that get it's up early maybe because we don't take institutionalized religion so seriously that might be one thing and this is why i was saying a second ago, I, I we're going to wind up going down a rabbit hole here that might be part of it I, I i think you know you can you can point to the services being in a different language to anybody who doesn't speak hebrew and even to hebrew speakers it's an archaic form of the language not that archaic some of it is we when we were talking to sarah and about prayer she mentioned that that it's not quite it's like a it's not a second language but it's not a first one it's somewhere in between but Fine, you know that's that's another variable. Uh, other variables. It's like reading King James for English speakers, today. or Shakespeare. Yeah, where there's enough. Right, there's enough that you can get it, but it's different enough that it will throw you for a loop. Yeah, it's not like reading Chaucer, though. No, that's true. Um, but you know, that's look. That's that's another variable. Um, there, there. I, I can I can point to three, you know, at least three or four off the top of my head. But but at least at the very at the, at the very least, it doesn't have the same sense of grandeur. And I'm using that on purpose because of the pasuk you mentioned when I mentioned the building of the church. Gadol shmi bagoyim. My name is greater amongst the nations. Mm-hmm. The quote from uh, My name is great. Malachi, Malachi. My name uh, is great among greater. The nations. Not greater. My name is great among the nations. By you guys, I don't know. But by the Fine, nations, yeah, okay. Well, that's why I was saying greater, because it's said as a contrast. But he, fine, you're right. That's a, that's definitely the accurate translation. 
Um, so these are all things that are, are very attractive to me. Uh, another one, by the so, way, and this is really funny. I'm sorry to, to cut you off. I just want to lay it out there again very quickly. Is churches have, from what I see, I have not lived among them. I don't know. But my perception is that they have a much more close-knit sense of community than many of the synagogues that we have. Mm-hmm. We Certainly have, in Israel. Yeah, but even in America. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, look, we have... The, the contrast here is that many synagogue communities in America are tight-knit because that is is the center of the community whereas in israel wherever you go you're part of the community so the synagogue is like this place where people go and do their thing right um and 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 well i'd also add that we have perfected a exile the wandering jew the Mm -hmm. portable civilization yeah and and part of that is the fact that you are a Jew, regardless of where you are, mm-hmm. you can do, I'd say, at least 90% of the daily commandments without being next to any other Jews. Oh, that was a fascinating thing in that book, in the Land of Believers, where there's this tremendous emphasis on being friends with believers. And can you be a friend with a non-believer? And what would that be? Well, hang on, because I grew up that way also. Look, my first Uh, meaningful interaction with anybody outside of the Jewish people, I was 23 years old. I was in a master's program. And because I was doing field work in a hospital, I had to interact with the people in the hospital. That was my first trip in my life out of the bubble of the greater Jewish community. Wow. But... It wasn't centered around my synagogue. It was centered around the fact of, and look, neighbors, schools, uh, camps, summer camps, and things like that. It wasn't. It wasn't a sense of community. I prayed in four different synagogues, depending at what time I woke up and you know what time I wanted to finish, and even perhaps who I wanted to talk to that morning mm-hmm. during services, but or who had a better kiddish at the end of services. These all went into the thing. So, like, I didn't belong to any particular thing. My father actually had membership in more than one. Oh, really? Yeah. And he had, you know, this was the, the this was a synagogue that he belonged to because it was the most local. Mm-hmm. And if he wasn't there, the rabbi would be insulted. But he didn't particularly like the services there. He liked them in another place. And the Torah classes, the shoe room that he went to, were in the second place. And then a third place opened up, and it happened to be that year. He was in Avelut. He was mourning, and mourners are... Uh, generally given the uh, opportunity to be the prayer leaders, to be the chazan. Oh, Um, that's where he would have had the opportunity. But there was a different guy who was a mourner in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so he wound up in a third place because of the time that they would pray in terms of his work schedule. And they were very, you know, uh, accommodating and they'd make sure he always had a a minyan, a prayer quorum, and he was able to always lead the services. And he had this tremendous hakaratatov, this tremendous appreciation. So at, at that point, he was a member of three shuls. Wow. So there was no, there wasn't, it had nothing to do with community. In fact, most of the people picked the shuls based on the social aspects of it than anything else. Like I said, who do you want to talk to? But that's exactly what the, the opposite of what you're saying. No, no, it's no. It's all no. about community. There was no sense of community. The, 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 the synagogues attract types of people. If you earn over a certain amount, 
you're going to be in a synagogue of other people who earn over that same amount. If you're a guy that likes to drink after services Saturday morning, you're going to be in a synagogue of people that like to drink after services on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. If you're the kind of guy that wants a very spiritual experience where they sing a lot, you're going to go to the singing a lot shul. That's how it's split up. So there's no sense of community in terms of we live together. You're not even necessarily friends with these people outside of just seeing them in the synagogue. That's my point. There's no sense. Look, in most of these these synagogues, and again, obviously, I'm talking about one particular area of New York and one particular strain of Judaism. This is not meant to be a universal descriptor. It's certainly not my experience. Right. Except when I was living in the German colony. So... There wasn't. There was no synagogue-based uh, kindness initiatives. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you had a kid, the meal train didn't come through the synagogue; it came through the people on your block. Ah. And if you lost your job, mm-hmm. the charity that you would receive wouldn't necessarily be from the synagogue. It would be from an organization that dealt with this over, you know, larger areas. But you're just saying that there was critical mass of social organization in Flatbush that it functioned a lot like Israel. In a way, yes. Perhaps. But even if you go to places that are not Flatbush, the same still winds up holding true. So if you go to Lakewood, which is not Flatbush, and in fact was a place that started being built around one institution, yeah, it quickly grew into the same pattern, the same methods, and the same modes of organization. Mm-hmm. If you go to Chicago... It's That's the what I'm same saying. Way. We, we gravitate toward decentralization. That's our thing. We Yes, but that comes at a price of feeling as if you're part of a community. Uh-huh. So that's how I came to this. I was pointing out that there's one of the things that I find very attractive is this sense hmm. of being part of something. Yeah. Now, for us, what we're part of is a people. But, you know, in terms of... But the, we're a people of free radicals. That Yes, but what I mean is peoplehood is like three layers above community. Mm-hmm. You have the individual, then you have the community, and then you have the, well, the greater – well, the individual, family, community. I'm saying – so like the, the, the distance between community and people is, is a much further distance than between, let's say, individual and community. Mm-hmm. So – and I felt that lack. I honestly, in many ways, I feel it here in Israel too. I feel very part of the nation of Israel. I feel very part of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. I feel very part of uh, the enterprise that, that we have here. But in terms of communal level, I know a few people in my community. We're friends. Mm-hmm. Some of them I actually met in the synagogue. But honestly, I don't know the names of 80% of the people I pray with weekly. Right. So that's something. So those are three or four things I think that are very attractive to me. So, with all that said, Tzvi, no. why don't you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Oh, that's a great question. Let's pause uh, 10 seconds just to break this up into a new segment, and then let's come back and answer it. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back. Tzvi, no. Why don't you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? 
What's he saving me from? That's a pretty good question. Clearly, eternal damnation. What's so bad about that? Well, no, I'll tell you why. Obviously, it's meant to be flippant and sarcastic, but it touches on Pascal's wager. Okay, keep going. Pascal's wager, for those of you that don't know, is the simple mathematical equation of if there is a God, well, better yet, if there is no God, right? So all you have is this life, right? So then why would you want to live in a limited way with religion if you could have the whole world? However, if there is a God and there is eternity and you're going to lose eternity for this world, so it's better to live in a limited way in this world in order to get eternity. Pascal's wager is since it's a 50-50 shot, you may as well flip the die, flip the coin or roll the dice. Take the odds, the 50-50 odds of there being a next world and therefore live your life in this world accordingly. No, no, no. He's saying that because the potential benefits are so great, it's better to take the possibility. Oh, okay. I was just setting it up in terms of odds. Obviously, the reason for doing that would be that the payout is better than, you know, the payout is greater than what you're putting down. Right. I mean, anyone who plays the stock market or bets on sports games, this is what you look for. An asymmetrical... You're saying that you want to set up the question of why... Well, what's he saving me from touches on Pascal's wager. Because the first question is, is it true? And the second question is, well, if it is true, so is it worth doing things in order to get the payout? Now, I would like to answer the question on two levels. The first one is, I'm not entirely convinced it's true. And that's a very funny thing for a religious person to say, I suppose. What's not true? I'm not sure there is an afterlife. I'm not positive of anything. You should listen to our episode on Iran. We talked about where it came from. I'm not sure that it's true. I don't think anyone is positive it's true. I think people who are positive of it tend to just decide that it's a given. And they'll find all sorts of weird pseudoscientifical anecdotes that, you know, prove it. But anybody who's a rational person, there's no proof of any of that. I mean, look, in our tradition, the big proof that there's an afterlife is a a priori argument. Mm-hmm. Which is meant, and then, by the way, there's a, there, there's a point in that. It's set up as a logical thing. But you know what that a priori argument is. Yeah, say it. The argument is, if, first I'll present it as it's written and and give over the sense of wonder and are you kidding me. It's written as, if you can have a baby, right? So you take some sperm and you put it in a womb and it sits there for some time and then out comes a new life. So if you take a body and you bury it, how much more so that there should be a new life? Now, obviously, that sounds insane, but the the logical argument is actually quite a good one. If you accept that humans evolved from Earth and that Mother Earth is not 
a stupid poetic phrase, but is rather a, you know, a truthful metaphor. Mm -hmm. That is the source of life. So if life that evolves from Earth retains enough power to create life, that if you take a piece of it and put it in another totsad uh, ta'aretz, another outgrowth of life through Earth, and that's enough to create a new life, then you better well believe in the power of the Earth itself to create life, and therefore there is resurrection of the dead, and therefore there's a world to come. Mm-hmm. That's how it's presented in the Talmud, in the Gemara. And that's that's the only argument we got. I can see the logic behind such an argument. I'm willing to roll the dice, so to speak, on such an argument. But there's no certainty experientially to such an argument. There's a certainty perhaps intellectually. There's a certainty logically. But... I mean, look, I, I buried my mom three months ago, and there's there's a horrible finality in putting a, a body in the ground. You know, we the way we do it in Israel, especially where you're literally putting a body in the ground, there's no casket, there's no there's no sugarcoating things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there's a finality to that experientially, and final doesn't lend itself to certainty of <laughs> undoing, you know. So I'm not I'm not sure I I look I, the the best way to put it is I believe in an afterlife but I'm not sure there is one and and the Judaism that I practice if as much of an ism as I do practice but the 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 Torah that I follow is one that's predicated on life in this world you do the same perhaps without realizing it but you'll notice that Moses never talks of an afterlife. God never talks of an afterlife. The clearest allusion we have to an afterlife is Daniel, is Daniel, where he's told, and you, you'll go to sleep, but you'll wake up to your reward in in, in, uh, in, in, in the end of days, is how it's worded. That's funny. I don't even think of that as an allusion to the afterlife. Well, all. the only reason that anybody takes it as one at this point is that it's one of the uh, proposed proofs in the Talmud of the world to come. But it shoots it down by saying, well, they only said that to Daniel. They didn't say it to anyone else. I like Azir's here, Moshe. But even so, okay, so so to translate again, the song at the sea, after the splitting of the Red Sea or Reed Sea, depending on your level of archaeological knowledge. Um, so Moses and all of Israel sing... And the way it's introduced is with the Hebrew word for then. As. And it's in then. future tense. Yashir, Yashir will sing. So then Moses will sing. Moses and all the Jews will sing. And that's taken as an allusion to, again, in the world to come, they will sing this song. And but, even if you understand Hebrew is not having a tense structure, but instead of instead having an aspect structure where that's sort of some kind of imperfective aspect. So it's then they would sing or would be singing. Then it's the same thing. It comes out the same way. There's something in progress that's going to eventually emerge from the crossing of the sea. Right. But but again, the Bible doesn't seem, the Torah does not seem to care much about there being a world to come or not. 
And it very much couches its arguments in the life you'll have in this world. And most of us, in terms of our day-to-day life, do not really think of the world to come. Nobody's sitting there and really weighing if they should drop that quarter in that donation box. And then they decide to do it because, oh, well, this way I'm going to get myself some world to come. They're thinking about where's this money going and what's it going to accomplish. Well, it'd be pretty uncomfortable if they were thinking, okay, now I'm going to drop this quarter in this box, give some charity so that I get my world to come. He's like, well, what what the hell are you doing? You're a prostitute? (laughs) There is that. There is that. And the other thing is... That's what Pascal's wager comes down to. Am I going to prostitute myself out? Like, can I be bought off by God? Or am I going to have integrity based on... Myself. Myself. And what I believe in and what I want to accomplish. So that breaks down if your sense of self extends beyond... Well, world, well, but, hang on, because okay. here's, here's the thing. We believe that the world to come is in this world. I wouldn't say in this world. Yes, it is in this world, in the sense of this planet. That's the, where the resurrection of the dead part of our belief system fits in. The Talmud makes it very clear. You can't judge a person without the body being present. That when you're judging an individual, it has to be that individual. Because the soul can always claim, well, it was the hormones' fault. Mm -hmm. And the body can always claim, well, it's that darn soul that wanted that sense of uh, affection and therefore, I don't know, visited that whorehouse. There's even a question. Or ate that cheeseburger. There's even a question about who gets the reward. Is it the the neshama, the soul that gets the reward, or is it the body? Because there was a body and the, who was doing so all the work, So the answer right? is that it has to be both together. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we believe in a resurrection of the dead. And following that is the real ultimate judgment. And following that, those who are judged to have c- contributed to that world that has been created will be allowed to enjoy the fruits of their labors, and those that haven't won't. It's actually very simple in a a beautiful way. Simple in the sense that it Mm -hmm. all clicks together. If you live your life towards the goals of where this world is supposed to get to, then you'll enjoy it when it gets there. And if you don't, you won't. So So you're saying that heaven is a place on earth. Yes. I'm saying that to a person who believes in a heaven that's unconnected to this planet, then any action you do on this planet is at best tangentially related to what you want to get out of it. We've now spoken for a considerable amount of time about the world to come, and we haven't mentioned the critical variable, which whenever I've spoken about this with Christian friends and acquaintances emerges very quickly in the discussion which is sin yes here's the thing Mm -hmm. to us if you had to order the variables Mm -hmm. we would put this world next world at the top and then based on that we have uh sins 
and for us the opposite would be mitzvot, commandments, good deeds, whatever. Well, sins isn't even a category in itself. It breaks down into a number of different things. Correct. But the idea of doing something wrong, mm -hmm. the framework of wrong, is in the context of those two worlds. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but it's certainly how it seems to a lay outsider. In the Christian worldview, those are reversed. First, there is an element of sin, and then there's an element of heaven or hell. The existential aspect is not the two worlds. The two worlds is a result of there being sin, and those who are righteous go to heaven, and those who are not righteous go to hell. Ah, you're saying, so in your perception of Christian theology, there's this reality of are you doing what God wants or not? And now, in order to get you on track and make sure that you do what God wants and don't do what God doesn't want, we're going to institute this disciplinary policy of heaven and hell. I'm not sure and it's disciplinary, but it's definitely reactive. And God rewards the righteous with something and punishes the evil with something else. Sticks and carrots. Ba uh, kind of. I mean, I'm I'm not sure it really captures the 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 picture or the flavor. Well, yeah, because the sticks are underneath you and they're burning, and, <laughs> and the carrot is laced with jalapeno. Haha. -ha. No, I, what I mean mm. is, but but to us, we have this. As I mentioned before, the sim the beautiful simplicity of the conception. Sin is basically something which doesn't go to where it's supposed to go. So you have this conception of a world in formation. And its goal is what we term the world to come, which, by the way, is very literally worded. The world to come. That will be coming. If, if this is a world in formation, that is the product that will be formed. And, and therefore could... gives birth to the idea of sin in the sense of something that doesn't end up there, if not actively ruins it. The question, in a sense, is always, what world is coming to you? Well, I disagree with that. I disagree with that because the individualistic flavor of it, the individualistic perspective of that question is not native to Torah. I don't mean it in a purely individualistic way. I mean... What world are you going to make yourself directed toward? What what world do you have coming? But what, that's the thing. Again, what? it's not yourself. When I look, when I do, let's take charity because we used it as an example before, and because it's it's a, a simple one. When I'm giving charity, it's not because of me. It's because of them. As if to say, if this doesn't help me. Is this worth doing? I mean, look, this is a beautiful story, and it's worth bringing out for the contrast. But this is the literal story of uh, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, mm -hmm. right? Rabbi Hanina, son of Tradion, <laughs> uh, is one of the ten martyrs that the Romans killed um, in the Bar Kokhba revolt, right? And so the story picks up where he was teaching Torah in public, which was outlawed, and he was arrested. And he gets to prison, and lo and behold, he meets his rabbi, his rabbi, in the prison. And the rabbi looks at him and says, you know, Hanina, uh, I'm not sure if you heard this, 
but teaching Torah in public is a capital offense. What were you thinking? You idiot. And he answers him, listen, heaven will have mercy, you know, I'm doing heaven's work. Heaven's going to work for me. Don't worry about it. What are you, some kind of religious nut? Well, no, the the, the actual words are beautiful. The rabbi says, I'm talking to you in sense, and you're answering me that heaven will have mercy. (laughs) Right? How many times a day do I hear that from people? (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised, continues the rabbi, if they take you out in your Torah scroll that you're teaching from, and they burn you in the town square with it, which, by the way... Is exactly, is exactly what, what happens. Is. So, he says, he stops for a minute. And then he says, well, Rabbi, do you think I have a share in the world to come? This is a pretty shocking question. Considering that a minute ago, he's confident of a miracle based on what he's doing. Not Forget the world that. to come. I, it's this world. And the guy has every reason, in a sense, to be confident in what he's doing. He's doing everything right. This is a person who cares about all the mitzvot, is extremely meticulous in all of his observance, is willing to give over his soul in order to teach Torah, is dedicated to the community. He's doing everything right. Right. And he's asking, do you think well, I have a share in the world to yeah. come? And then the rabbi answers him with something insane. He says, I don't know. Did anything come your way to do? The Hebrew obviously is more pointed than any... English translation can do with it. It's Did any action come to your hands? So Rabbi Hanina stops and he thinks. And he says, well... First, he has to think. And then he says, well, you know, this one time I was collecting charity on, on Purim, on the holiday of Purim. And I forgot which pocket I put the charity money in and which pocket had my money. And there were different amounts. I didn't want to shortchange the charity, and I didn't want to use charity funds for personal use, so I gave both pockets to charity. The rabbi says, well, if you did that, you can be certain you have a share in the world to come. And then the next day, they bring him out, they burn him, that's where the story ends. Right, so as we pointed out, the fact that he suddenly has this question is ridiculous. The fact that the answer is, you know, well, one time I had this thing and by accident, you know, so I decided I'm going to give my money, potentially my money to charity just to be safe. This is ridiculous. This guy did so many commandments over the course of his life. Why doesn't he say something along the lines of, well, I learned a lot of Torah. That's a commandment. Mm-hmm. I wore phylacteries. I wore tefillin. That's a commandment. Every day. I kept Shabbat every week. That's a commandment. Why does he go for something? And obviously, the guy's racked up lots of brownie points. Right. So obviously it's not about brownie points, and it's not about what you did. It has to be something that's bali adcha. It has to be something which comes your way. And it wasn't done based on any kind of ideology or belief system that you had. But isn't that part of his belief system, the way that it worked out? You know, he has this whole belief system yes. about what is... Yeah. Yes. No, you're right. Obviously, the reason he wound up doing it is because he still believed in it, but he didn't set out in to do any action based on an ideological belief. Mm-hmm. He may have come to his decision on what was the right thing to do because of what he believed in. Okay. But it wasn't what he set out to do. It was an opportunity that presented himself, that was presented to himself to do. Mm-hmm. 
you can take this to a very strange conclusion for our Jewish listeners who will understand this, but we're told, For those of you listening in America, that's And the Rambam says, Right, and the Rambam says that what this really means is not you have lots of chances to do lots of things so you can get lots of heaven, but that you have lots of chances to do one thing right in your whole life that you might wind up doing one thing right and as such merit the world to come. Again, that's not one thing right on a mechanical level. That's that's one thing right on an existential level. Somehow where the, you could pop out of your agenda. And, and do something that's that's done and is you without it being something that was done by you for a different purpose. And that that distinction of what you do and why you do it, to me, really ties all these different things together. I, when I go, when, to, to, to bring it back to the beginning, when I talk mm-hmm. about not knowing that there is a heaven, mm-hmm. and I mentioned that the Torah never talks about a heaven, and I mentioned the experiential perspective of a human who lives in this world, and even if he thinks he'll come back in this world, forget a different heaven. Mm-hmm. And of course, obviously, that weirdness of trying to earn a heaven that's nowhere, nothing to do with your life right now. Mm-hmm. So for me personally... The way I live my life, or at least I try to, I don't do a very good job of it, but I try to, is with these principles in mind, I'll hunt for something that can come my way. I'll do my best to get rid of agendas. I'll live in a way that makes this world a better place. That's the most I could do. You want to talk to me about being saved? I'm not up to that. I'm not into that. It's not, it's just not the way I see the world. If somebody came to me at the end of how I live, or forget the end, he came to me right now and he says, you know, this idea you have, it's very nice. You want to make this world a better place. That's beautiful. And you're going to do things that come your way. That's great. And, but, but listen, if you keep doing that, you won't wake up in the world to come. My answer to that will be, but will it help the world to come? And I'm fine with that. I don't need the personal. Wait, I want to stress that. Mm -hmm. I don't need the personal reward in that sense. I don't care if I benefit. I care that what I'm doing is for a purpose. And if it turns out that I did my best and I had a share in that future of humanity, then that was worth it to me. Even if I don't gain any infinite delights or whatever I would gain from it. It doesn't matter to me. I, I look, you were here for this. I, I at the, at the in, in the Jewish tradition, uh, Shloshim, right? The 30-day uh, anniversary after someone loses a relative. In the morning period is a, is a very big thing. Mm-hmm. And so we got together. We had a, we had a meal. Uh, we made a siyum, which is a celebration over finishing something in Torah. And I spoke a little bit about my mom, and, and I mentioned, and this I, I really thought was the, the most wonderful thing I could say about her, is I said, you know, picture in your mind, and, and good, so you're from your, your mom, right? Where's she from? She had a mom or a dad, and they had a mom or a dad, and they had a mom or a dad. So go back 10 generations, right? Go back two, 300 years. So somewhere in Europe, in some little crap town 
is some guy who's like, you know, trying to get his way through life. You know, cold winters, and there's, you know, there's no heating, there's no stove, there's no electricity, the stuffy, itchy clothing, there's no, you know, mattresses, blankets are basically sacks with, with feathers. We've been to museums, we know what life was like then. Pretty rough life, right? And And everything this guy did, or girl did, in their life, wound up being me that again knowing the the genealogy of my family and how things played out basically what's left of all those ancestors and all their dreams and all their hopes is me did they have any idea of me when they lived their life no who can picture their fourth or fifth generation mm-hmm. uh, anticipate? Nobody. I imagine but, they have like really big heads and eyes, and <laughs> right? And sort of <laughs> dinky limbs, and they kind of levitate and probably slightly green colored because chloroplasts have been infused into their skin. And and they talk in beeps. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, but I'm saying like, but but obviously, right? But but if they were alive today, they would look at me hmm. and be like, you know what? This is the sum total of what i was dreaming about and what i worked towards and they would obviously be hoping and praying for the continuance of that and and the way i i finished was in terms of what my mom did i'm not going to get into that here and now but the way she lived her life and what she left behind her that would go out into this world and would carry her with it that that's the point she's not gone she survives she goes along that chain so if somebody were to tell me that all that really comes out of it is that the world be left a better place, whether it's my genetical children or it's the other people that I've helped and affected along the way and, and whatever comes of it, that's enough for me. That's a continuation into a future that I work towards and that I live my life for. And if your big answer is, but you're not going to have infinite delight, my answer is, so what? So what are you really saving me from, so to speak? So it's not even Jesus. It has nothing to do with, this is why I'm a Jew, because I don't believe in Christianity. I don't believe in, in, in certain strains of Judaism that have picked up, or, or have, for that matter, authored similar belief systems. I just don't believe in this kind of personal way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, but... Everything in this world comes with an expiration date. Yes. Everyone you love will die. Everything you work for will blow away in the entropic grains of sand as time goes along. And the sun will explode and the universe will implode. And we'll send rocket ships off to another solar system. And, well, if we're lucky. I mean, whatever. Yeah, right. If we're lucky. Or not. You know, but eventually everything will get swallowed into oblivion. Right. So this idea of there being an eternal next world that this world is emerging into, which is somehow a part of this world, seems to maybe not work out so well. And what do you do with that? I don't, personally. There is an idea a finite world is finite. It has an end. 
however you want to spin that, however you want to understand that, that's the given. The world is not forever. Existence is not forever. Existence? Existence is not forever. In the sense of the existence that we have as separated things and the hollow space, uh, Luriana Kabbalah, etc. That, that doesn't last forever. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Whether, you know, actually it's kind of cute that I, I went to the Ari, mm-hmm. the, to Luriana Kabbalah. Where, but obviously the end of that is that the, empty, the, the hollowed space is refilled. It has an ending in the sense of it becomes one. But the parameters that we have, however, whether you want to understand them as the sun exploding, you want to understand them as the world to come eventually ends. It ends. So it doesn't bother me that much. I accept my finitude. So as long as that's part of the world's uh, evolving, the world's growth, the world's coming into itself, that's the most I could hope for. Is that like the greatest thing that I can conceive of? I don't know. Probably not. I'd like to be God, I suppose. But is it the best that I can hope for understanding the parameters of the universe? I think so. Mm-hmm. So I'm not... like these, these arguments don't sway me. Because they assume certain givens that kind of play to the... They play to people's emotions. They play to the, the, the dark side of the moon. You know, they take the, the, the parts of a human psyche. Look, we're mammals, right? So... Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> all of us, except for you, is hatched from an egg. Look, no, but seriously, we're mammals. So we have this idea of nurturing. We have this idea of, you know, uh, childhood, which is not present in non-mammalian life forms. And we have this idea of the fear of death and of the unknown. And that comes from, you know, dying and not knowing anything. But so so a lot of these things play to those fears in giving them simplistic answers that can just turn you away from the existential dread that comes along with it. And I'd rather experience that dread and see what you can make of it than pretend it doesn't exist. Because it does. You're human. You're not going to not be human. These things are part of the human condition. So I'd rather be the most human I could be. And all the beauty and all the possibilities that that allows. And make something of myself. Okay, so how can you be fully human with the stain of original sin? Don't you need to do something about that? How can you address that without a perfect sacrifice? Remember when I pointed out that the order of the variables makes a difference? Mm -hmm. If you assume sin precedes existence, that's a great question. But I don't. Look, one of the cute things about our belief system is God waited 26 generations before he bothered giving a Torah. What happened to those 25 generations of people that didn't have a Torah? Do they, like, go to hell automatically because they had nothing good to do? Or purgatory or something like that. What is, is that what happens to them? Limbo. Limbo. But, but that we don't have that anywhere. And not only that, they have a really good excuse. I didn't have an opportunity to do anything different. 
Mm-hmm. You didn't give me anything that I could have done. So what do you want from me? So if I can take us back to the original question, why don't you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The answer is basically that the whole Christian notion of salvation is irrelevant to you. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, we, we Jews have a concept of a Messiah. Right. Which I think is uh, probably where a lot of that came from to to the Christians because it was important to say that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore, so, you know, well, what are you being redeemed from? Uh, this is a beautiful point because it seems to me, and Christian listeners, please tell me if I'm wrong here. It seems to me that the Messiah for Christians is the mechanism of salvation, the mechanism that enables the ultimate good, whatever it is. Whereas for us, the Messiah emerges at the end of the process and is sort of the crowning expression of it. But to everyone, according to the Rambam, just to put that out there for our Jewish listeners, he uses active language. The Messiah will make these things happen. Mm-hmm. But whether it's active or passive, and, and certainly the way we were discussing a moment ago in terms of this world, next world, mm-hmm. that's the crossing point. The point is that he's not forcing that transition. He's born of it as much as... He's born out of that transition right. and expresses that transition. Right, so I was going to say, yeah. and this is a beautiful way to end, in the, in the Talmud there's a debate Hmm. between scores of the Amoraim, scores of these these rabbis, where they're arguing, the, the, the way that it's worded is, one would say, let the Messiah come, hmm. but I don't want to see it happen. Right, right, right. And then the other one would say, let the Messiah come, and I should merit to sit in his donkey's dung. And and I would say both. <laughs> no, but that's the point. Right, that, that is the point. What that's why both opinions me, are there. Right, but yeah. what matters to me is not so much that I am saved, or that anything is saved, as much as there is a point to what to, to life. What I'm describing is a worldview, and and pardon the pun, where there's grandeur in its view of life. Everybody's life has a potential to matter and make a difference, and it doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't even matter what they're trying to do. If, if something comes their way, and they take the opportunity and they run with it, then they're part of the development of this world. Contrast that with the view that we talked about in the previous episode on happiness. Many people walk around with this view that we're isolated souls, like brains in jars, which are there for their own self-interest, basically. And what we're saying is it's, it's not about your life, it's about life. L'chaim. L'chaim. And to end off with a Bible quote, uh, Moses foresaw all of this when he exhorted us, I just love that word, to choose life. And the Hebrew, we've mentioned this before, it's not choose your life. He says, choose life so that you may live. It's not your life, it's life. Life. Which is plural. So that you may live. I think if I had to sum up everything I've been trying to say, Mm -hmm. those are the four words I'd use. If you're interested in any sort of self-preservation or self-salvation or self at all, choose life, all of it, and then you'll have something too. In these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die, 
Where you invest your love, you invest your life. In these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life.